Welcome to Kolisha, the podcast that gives Orthodox women a voice. Welcome back to Kolisha. I'm super excited this week to be joined by Dr. Aviva Goldstein, who is a Jerusalem-based mental health counselor who has a very interesting niche specialty, which is that she counsels boys and girls in their yeshiva and seminary gap year. She does family counseling too, but that's her primary um, specialty. So Dr. Aviva Goldstein is originally from the United States. Uh, She grew up in South Florida and she made Aliyah 10 years ago, now lives in Yerushalayim. Uh, she has a master's and doctorate from Israeli School of Education at YU, and she works as a family and individual counselor. So welcome, Dr. Goldstein. I'm really, really excited that you're here and that you're giving us your time on this really important topic. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So to be perfectly transparent, I am a mom of young kids, and I don't yet have kids of the age of your specialty. So um, I do think this is a really, really important topic of conversation. Um, And although I usually have some knowledge going into the conversation with my various guests of their area of expertise, even though most of the time it's pretty limited, this is something that I really am very limited in my in my knowledge about this topic. So um, I did reach out to some family and friends. I have lots of nieces and nephews that have gone to seminary and uh, some of them have shared their experiences with me and I've gotten some background information and topics that people would like to hear. So I'm really excited to tackle this conversation, but full disclosure, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> so I'm really going to let Dr. Goldstein take the lead on this one. <laughs> it's actually, in some ways, it's almost like the best way of doing it because like if if there's one thing we know about parenting, it's like, it's about the long game, right? Like most of our biggest parenting decisions are not about what happens tomorrow. It's about what happens 10, 15 years from now. So in some ways, it's actually the perfect time to have this conversation, you know, where our kid's going to be when they're 18, 19, 20. Great. So I'm ahead of the game. I get to start preparing my kids for seven and seven. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> also, in all honesty, I don't even have my own experience because I never went to seminary. And major shock for anyone who's listening, I did get married. So, um, <laughs> so I don't have my own experience to draw off of, but um, most of the women in my life that I know have gone to seminary. Um, and I know it's like a really important transformative year for a lot of people, usually for the good, sometimes comes along with a lot of challenges. And I do have a lot of peers and um, relatives and just a lot of people I know who have gone through this stage with their kids and for them too, as parents, it comes with its own set of excitement and also challenges. So I hope that a lot of people will gain from this conversation, um, either in the short term or the long term. Terrific. So um, Dr. Goldstein, what I wanted to start out with was a lot of, there are a lot of different quote unquote issues that come up during the seminary year that can come up, obviously not for everybody. But I think that for parents that are sending their kids off, especially now with the timing, it's summertime, lots of people are shopping, preparing, arranging. um, And there's so much to get done in terms of making sure you have everything you need. But there's also a lot of emotional work to do, making sure that kids are going, you know, in a healthy frame of mind and that they have sort of the resources and tools to get through this year in a healthy way. So some of the things that 
I uh, talk to people about that some of the themes that came up and you'll tell me if there's more or less or whatever were aspects of very strong peer pressure um, for especially seminary girls, but also yeshiva kids. So sometimes this is on like the frumkite side, kids feel very pressured to perform uh, up to a higher standard of frumkite or else they feel like they're not um, fulfilling their purpose of their seminary or yeshiva year. Sometimes on the negative side, it can be things like substance abuse. Um, someone was telling me that unfortunately alcoholism and marijuana use is quite common. Um, and then, you know, certain things like that, obviously we want our kids to have the tools to be able to resist or withstand or deal. Tell me what you see and what you think about those. Yeah, so um, th those are actually like, I think perfect um, ends of a spectrum, I think. And I, and I think the spectrum all comes down to this. None of us wanna feel judged. I really think that's what it comes down to. I don't know that it's about sleeve length and I don't know it's about drinking. I think at the core, none of us want to feel judged. Um, and so sometimes peer pressure is giving into a fear of being judged. What are my friends going to think if I say yes or if I say no or if I go this way or that way? Um, but in terms of what a parent can do, let's say, you know, you're spending the summer running to all the stores and getting all the things shipped and packing and whatever. What do you need to do? Um, I would say in addition to making sure they have everything on the packing list, um, I would, I would find time to be very explicit with our children um, and remind them that the family is not a place of judgment and that whatever decision you end up making during the year, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily gonna agree with you, but as your parent, I will always love you. I am the person that you can come to when you wanna celebrate a success. I'm the person that you can come to if you're struggling. But even if you have other characters in your life that can play those roles, I will never judge you unfavorably. I will always be sort of the core of what you need for love. And I think if that's the basis, again, not agreeing with every decision, not condoning every decision, but to say, I will always love you and that's not gonna change. Um, I think that is sort of the, the, almost like the armor that a lot of the kids need in order to be able to withstand peer pressure in whichever direction we're talking about, whether it's about what sleeve length they're wearing or what they're consuming. Um, but to know that like, I have that rock, I have that foundation, um, I think can be incredibly powerful. And so if you wanna sort of think about the summer before the, the year in Israel with like a massive to-do list of all the things, I would say put some conversations on that to-do list and make sure those conversations are happening. Make sure it's explicit. We can't just assume that our kids know of course we love them unconditionally. Of course we will always be there for them. We have to say it. We have to be really, really explicit about it. Um, and I would say in some ways that it's not going to guarantee that they're not going to make decisions that we feel great about. But knowing that they have that in their back pocket, I can I think can be a very, very powerful thing as they go through this experience of making a lot of independent decisions. Interesting. So that's sort of the foundation that you would lay. And then do you think it's important for parents to know and explicitly tell their kids this is out there, that's out there, you might see kids drinking alcohol, you might see kids who are getting really, you know, quote unquote, flipped out, like, do you think it's important to have conversations about each possible scenario or I mean, or it's like too much like you can't cover all of it so just give them that emotional foundation. Yeah, it's a good question. For the first thing I would say, by the way, is this is another 
this is like the perfect example of why it's okay to be talking about this if you have a seven-year-old, right? Because if the only time you have a conversation with your child about your unconditional love for them is the summer before they go off to Israel, I wouldn't say you're too late because it's never too late, but you did miss the boat a little bit, right? Like you missed a lot of opportunities. And if your child is five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and that's when they're building sort of this identity formation stuff and they're doing it with the haskama basically of my parents saying they love me no matter what, then when they're packing for their year in Israel and you are doing it explicitly and you're saying it because it's part of the to-do list, they're like, yeah, I know, I know. Thank you for saying it, but I know, right? So that, that's just like one piece of like why it's great to have these conversations way in advance. In terms of the specifics, I think it depends because there, there's a benefit and there's a risk. The benefit is um, if a parent really knows what's going on sort of out in the field, let's say, um, and they can share that with their kid, then that signifies to a kid, my parents know what's up. They know what's going on. The risk is that the parents don't always know what's up and sometimes they get it a little bit wrong. Right. And so the risk is that it reinforces the idea that like, oh, my gosh, my parents have no idea what they're talking about. But the benefit is, oh, my gosh, my parents really know they, they really do know what's going on. So I don't think I could give like just one answer. I think you have to know yourself as a parent. I think you have to know your child. I think you have to know what you are and what you are not comfortable talking about. Um, what one of the biggest pieces I would say of just successful parenting in general, and this has nothing to do with the year in Israel, but in general, I think all of us would probably agree that one of our best tools is knowing who to go to when we don't know the answer. So if you have a friend who's really good at, I don't know, figuring out, I don't know how to organize the house. My house is always a balagan. Everything is so different. I can't figure out it. My brain just doesn't work that way. But you have a friend that's really good at that then having that friend to rely on as a resource can be an incredibly powerful thing in your own parenting as you structure your home. I would say the same goes for things like this, things with like the emotional social development of a child. Which friends do you have that you really admire them as parents? Which friends do you have that have older kids that you feel like, you know, made some really good calls? Um, and I would, I would consult with them. They don't necessarily have to be experts that you pay a lot of money to, um, to get advice, knowing that not every friend is gonna have the right advice, but you, we are all probably pretty good at knowing who are the right people in our lives to go to. And you can really have that conversation with a friend um, and also share that with your child, that one of the ways to sort of be successful, not only in the year in Israel, but also just in our long-term experiences is knowing who we can rely on. Um, and so modeling that for our kids, I think can also be a really powerful thing. You know, like if, when you're in Israel, you see something that's bothering you, of course, you can always call me. Of course we can always talk about it. But if that's awkward and you feel uncomfortable, you know, your aunt, so-and-so, or the neighbor, so-and-so, or your old teacher, so-and-so, whoever it might be for your child, that can also be a really important, um, resource to have of like, I don't know how to get out of this pickle, but I know who I can call to help me figure out how to get out of the pickle. That, that can be a really, um, important tool to have in their toolbox. Great advice on both sides, both the parenting side and the kid side, and also probably would help alleviate some of that anxiety of going out into like this huge unknown where you might, or, you know, the student might feel like I'm so alone, but no, you know, it's okay to reach out for help and, you know, normalizing that and making sure that they understand that that's okay. Not only okay, but good. Um, probably would also help alleviate some of the pressure of transitioning out of the home and into this like big new world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Which, you know, is interesting because 
I was, like I said, I was uh, sort of crowdsourcing before doing this talk. And one of the things that came up was someone I know mentioned that her son had some anxiety transitioning away from home to Israel, which is probably very common. And then um, someone else mentioned, I didn't know to call it anxiety. I called it homesickness. Mm. And I was thinking, you know, I wonder if we're labeling things differently now because there's so much more awareness of mental health and so many more people are willing to reach out for help. You know, what we used to call, oh, my kid's homesick because of course they went to Israel and they are away from home for a, a full year for the first time. Could that be a similar phenomenon? We're just talking about it differently. And like, maybe we're having these conversations with our kids differently now than we used to. Yeah. I I, I I will totally con like conflict myself, contradict myself, because um, I'm really of two minds. One of them is we really do know so much more now about just generally the human experience um, that we are capable of labeling things and being much more like miduyak, much more accurate, let's say, with how, how we refer to things on the one hand. And on the other end of the spectrum, I think there are certain people, places, communities, whatever, that have a tendency to just diagnose everything. Everything needs a diagnosis. Everything needs a label. And I think our challenge is finding out where between those extremes we are we are most comfortable. And I'll give, I'll give an example about anxiety because I think it's one of the more common ones. Let's say um, one of our kids is in Israel for the year and they're having a hard time and they're feeling overwhelmed and maybe they're feeling homesick or maybe they're, you know, freaked out socially, whatever it might be, they're having a hard time. And so someone might be quick to say, you know, they're really struggling with anxiety. So on the one hand, it might be true, right? Diagnosable, clinical, chemical anxiety that if you went to an expert practitioner, they would be able to say, yes, this is anxiety. The flip of that is a lot of us can feel anxious without having anxiety. And to label it as anxiety, I think puts us in a different place. Whereas if if, if we have the ability to say, I'm just feeling really anxious right now, that's like in some ways a mood. It's sort of like a, a space where we go, but it comes and it goes. It's not a label that stays with me for the rest of my life. Now, if you are somebody that has actual diagnosable anxiety and you're being treated for it either with medication or with therapy or a combination of both, whatever it is, amazing, go for it, right? Like if we have an ear infection, we call it an ear infection. We go to the ENT, we get an antibiotic, whatever it might be. So same thing here. But just because you have an earache doesn't mean it's an ear infection, right? And I think we have to be really careful about not over-labeling or mislabeling because everybody can feel anxious at different times. It doesn't mean that it's anxiety. And I think it's it, it, it might feel like semantics and I might be, everybody might be rolling their eyes, oh my God, I've even given it a break. But, but I really do feel like it's important to make that distinction because it's not the same thing. Um, and so for somebody who's really been home more or less for the last 18 years, um, maybe a summer here or there going to camp, but really for the vast majority of their lives, they've been home and been taken care of. And all of a sudden they go off to Israel and there's tons of independence and there's tons of new people and new experiences and new opportunities and all the big questions that are being asked. Like, yeah, of course we're going to feel a little anxious, duh. Right. And, and, and that's the gorgeous. It means our systems are working. If I'm feeling anxious because all of a sudden I'm in a totally new environment and a totally new experience with totally new expectations, I kind of should feel anxious. 
right? Because the anxiousness shows up to tell us something. It's telling us, hey, something's different. Hey, I have to figure out how I'm going to respond. Hey, I have to figure out what's going on with myself. I got to tune in a little bit. And that's like a Kaddish Baruch Hu's gift to us is by giving us these warning signals to say, I got to pay attention. I got to tune in. Um, and so if we're feeling a little bit anxious, in some ways, I think it's a good sign, right? Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, oh my gosh, you know, she's got to start the meds and let's send her home. And she needs, you know, tons of individualized attention from every practitioner in the country. Like, again, sometimes the answer is yes, right? Meaning sometimes they do need the medication, the practitioners not that. Sometimes it's just your system doing everything right, saying like, my systems feel a little bit off and like they should, right? Like it's a totally different experience. And I actually think that's a gift that, that our bodies, mind, souls, whatever, give us when we have those feelings. Of course, you know, there's, those things are built into us for healthy coping mechanisms, right? And I remember learning in school that um, when I took my psychiatry classes, that the main difference between labeling something as anxiety versus just anxious feelings or other disorders that you might experience is whether you can function Mm-hmm. and get through the day with them, right? So if someone has yeah. anxious feelings throughout the day, but they're doing everything they need to do, and once in a while, an anxious feeling pops up in a response to, you know, whatever, a stressful situation, that's considered healthy, like you said, it's your body telling you something or your mind telling you something. But if someone is more often than not anxious, or they cannot get through their, their day doing their basic things and be present for the people who need them, that's the point where it's considered sort of dysfunctional and maybe needs like a diagnosis. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think that's fair. I would just add the caveat that like sometimes things are hard. You know, like I, I just, last week I posted a rant on Instagram. I was in Target. I live in Israel. I come to America for the summer, I go to Target, do the whole thing. And there was a pillow, you know, one of these like cutesy decorated pillows that just said no bad days in like four or five different colors all over the pillow. It was adorable. I got so furious. What do you mean no bad days? Of course there are bad days. We all have bad days. And sometimes it's not just one bad day. Sometimes it's two, three or four. And like, that's fine. And this notion that like, if things are hard, I should really speak to someone. Look, I don't want to put myself out of business, but like, maybe not right? Like maybe, maybe yes, maybe you should speak to someone, but like, it's also okay to have a hard time for a little bit, not forever. And you shouldn't be struggling and it shouldn't be that everything feels like so overwhelming and insurmountable, but like we can have bad days and we can have a really hard time adjusting to something new. That's okay. And again, that's another example. Okay. You're really going to be ahead of the curve of like, why it's good to talk about this when you have younger kids, because that's what they need to learn when they're four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten right? That we do have bad days and sometimes things are hard and sometimes it is hard to make friends. And sometimes our friends are going to do things that are not nice. And sometimes we're not sure what the answer is, right? Like all of that struggle, if we can make that just normal for our kids when they're younger, that's not to say that by the time they're 18, they're going to be like, oh, I got this, like totally fine. No, they might have a hard time, but when they're having a hard time, they're going to know like my world isn't caving in. I'm okay. It's okay to have bad days. I apologize to Target. I really do love Target. And I'm I mean, like who doesn't love Target, but I, I totally, <laughs> but right. But you don't see it. You know what I'm saying? Like all of us have bad days. All of us have, you know, the shirts that say like good vibes only come on really good vibes only. No good vibes. A lot of the time, but like good vibes only. No. And if we can find a way to teach that to our kids before 
they're 17, 18, 19, so that when they do find that speed bump in the road, which they're going to find because it's inevitable because that's how life goes, they'll be more equipped to respond to it. Even if the response is, I should probably call a professional, figure out what this is, they can do that from a place of power, from a place of control, from a place of comfort to say, I know myself and this doesn't feel right which is very different from like, I don't even know what this feeling is. I've never felt it before. It's so unfamiliar and foreign. Um, so just to also like normalize, like things are hard and that's okay. Right. And it seems like from what you're saying, if they do sort of get that, um, get that information growing up or, you know, when they're, uh, when they're an adult and they have those experiences, they'll have a clearer picture of when they need help versus when, I can, I can handle this. Right. As totally, opposed to totally. every feeling that comes up, uh, means run to go get help from someone outside of themselves or outside of their inner circles. Like you were saying, people who can, who they can just ask for advice. Um, which is so interesting because this is also another topic that came up when I was doing my crowdsourcing, <laughs> which was, why is every seminary girl in therapy now? Like some of the moms that were like, you know, it seems like every single seminary girl now needs therapy. And when I was younger, it wasn't like that. Like we went to seminary and it was okay. And, and then we came home. Like, obviously there's always going to be a percentage of people that do really struggle and do really, you know, have this, these disorders to a dysfunctional degree and they really, really need that help. But it does seem like, and, and I'm not even in that stage and I feel it because I know people who are, um, it does seem like that's a huge um, piece of advice that's given by educators and also just like you know I like to read this dating column in one of the local papers every week and it's always someone asking for shit advice of one stage or another and virtually always the answer is go to therapy mm. um go to go see a therapist go talk to a therapist it's very very common response and speaking to someone who recently came home from seminary she said that so many of the teachers and mentors tell the students, go to therapy, go to therapy. Now, obviously, like we said, there's definitely place for therapy. But in your opinion, do you think that th the advice of go to therapy is being overused? Or is it being used appropriately with our seminary and yeshiva students from what you've seen? It's such a good question. And it's an, <laughs> I'm going to give you another answer where I contradict myself. Sorry. <laughs> but I think that's like the life of nuance is you sort of see different ends of things. Of course. Um, okay. So here's what I will say. I, I will say, you know, when we were that age, we weren't all in therapy and now all of our kids are in therapy and all that stuff. So the good side of that is that it wasn't so long ago, and dare I say, we even still have it today, that there are parts of the community or family members or whoever it might be that don't wanna talk about the things that are uncomfortable. And so rather than talking about it and dealing with it, we're just gonna pretend like it doesn't exist. And now, today's generation of kids is basically saying, no, thank you. Like, I'm not looking to suppress everything. I'm not looking to ignore everything. I'm not looking to sweep things under the rugs. I live in a world, in a culture, in a society where everything is spoken about. And maybe I don't need to be the oversharer, but maybe I'm not oversharing. Maybe I'm just willing to confront the things that my parents and grandparents weren't willing to confront. That's like one end of the spectrum. And that's kind of like the healthy aspect yeah, of it. Yeah. Okay. And just because you go to therapy doesn't mean you have a disorder, a diagnosis or a dysfunction. You might just need somewhere safe where you can just sort of talk things through, think things through and figure things out. Um, remember, for the vast majority of these young adults, it's the first time 
that they're on their own. Now, they're not totally on their own. A lot of them have curfews. A lot of them have supervision. A lot of them have meals that are provided for them. So it's not total independence. But for the vast majority of them, it's their first taste of like the closest thing to full independence. And that's a lot to handle. So if you have somebody where you can sort of sort these things through and say like, wait a second, like, who am I? Wait, what do I believe? Wait, what's my identity going to be? Wait, where am I going to be in 10 years? How am I going to get there? In some ways, that can be an amazing gift to have. And on top of that, I will add that I say this with like absolutely the utmost respect for the the Rebbe's, the Rebbitsons, the Mechanchim that are the, the educational um, authorities or educational characters in these schools. Um, and so I'm saying that as sort of like I'm starting with I have unbelievable Hakara Satova and respect for them. They've really given their lives essentially for our children um, and don't get to bring a whole lot home. So I, I'm not saying it in any way as a disrespect to them, God forbid. Um, they are not trained in mental health, in social emotional development, very often in adolescent development. They may be amazing people to speak to. They may have amazing insights. But when one of these teachers say, hey, I'm really happy to listen, but I'm not really sure I'm the right person to talk to because I'm not really sure I know what the right answer is. I mean, that kind of humility, I think, bumps them up, you know, 97 notches in my book to know sort of what I do do and what I don't do. Where do my Dalit almost end? And I also think that's a shift. I think 10, 20 years ago, both, both because therapy wasn't as much a thing as it is now. And again, with total respect for the Mechanchim, they were very much given uh, the platter to say, like, please just do everything for our kids. So there were people in positions taking on responsibilities that weren't the right match in many ways. That's not to say you can't get ATSs from your Rebbies. Of course you should. That's not to say you can't confide in the in the Rebbitsons or the whatever we call them in the different schools. Of course we should. But I think one of the shifts, and thank God, because I think our community has has really acknowledged this, and I think the community of Mechanachim has acknowledged this, like, I don't, I don't know what to tell these kids when they're struggling with ABC or when they come from a home of XYZ or when they're confronting whatever it is, right? And I think I think that's another part of what's going on. I give them so much credit when they're the ones who say, like, I'm really happy to listen and I can talk to you about this part of it, but I really don't have any knowledge in this part of it. So let me give you the phone number of somebody to speak to. That I think is like a gorgeous, gorgeous thing that a lot of them have started doing. And that might be the difference of what a lot of parents are seeing. It used to be, okay, you could just hang out with your Chumash teacher, you know, go to her house for Shabbos, stay up late with her Friday night and, you know, talk about all of your whatever, you know? Um, and I think that still happens. And those relationships are amazing and intimate and beautiful. But I do think there's a recognition of like everybody staying in their lane a little bit. And I think that that therapy piece might be part of it. Interesting, because I think like the, the underlying message to so much of this, and in my opinion, to like, life itself um mm -hmm. is just balance right finding mm -hmm. the right balance of things um you know knowing when you can handle a problem versus when you can't um knowing like both on the student side and on the teacher side right knowing uh when a relationship with a teacher is what you need versus a relationship with a therapist is what you need right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i think what you're saying all goes back to as a tool for parents is trying our best throughout our kid's life to teach them a balanced approach to things and how to recognize within themselves when things are getting extreme on one side or the other, right? And then knowing what resources might be appropriate or asking 
you know, a trusted person, what resources might be appropriate. But the underlying message that I'm getting is trying to achieve um, a real balance for our kids and trying to give that over to them. For sure. For sure. You know, it's interesting. Again, <laughs> before we even started talking, I didn't realize how many examples would come up of why this conversation is great for parents of seven-year-olds. But here's like another great example of like what happens when your second, third, fourth grader um, gets into a fight with a friend at school? Like think about in your own home, in your own, even in your own childhood, like what would happen? Like at what stage does the child confide in the parent? At what stage does the parent call the teacher? At what stage does the parent maybe talk to the other parent? At what stage is the child encouraged to go speak to the other child, right? The, my guess, and I have nothing empirical, I have nothing statistical, but my guess is like the most common thing is like, kid comes home from school upset, talks to mommy, mommy gets upset for the child, mommy calls teacher and basically says like, deal with this, right? Um, and, and that's how I think most of us were raised. And I think that's sort of the way the system is set up. But like, how different would it be if, if the kid was like told to sort of try to figure it out, right? Not God forbid, like you're on your own kid, like I'm not interested, but like, why don't you call the teacher, sweetheart? Or what do you think I should say to the teacher? Or if you wanted to speak to the, the kid that was not nice to you, what would you say, right? Like empowering the kid to say like, yeah, you're, you're in a mess right now. How do you think we should get out of the mess? Again, I'm not saying, God forbid, that we should ditch our kids when they get in a fight with a friend and say, like, you're on your own. But empowering the child, even in, in, the, in the easiest scenarios, in the, in the best case scenarios, empowering them to be able to be the driver of their own sort of social emotional bus. If we do that for a child when they're younger, what's the outcome when they're 18, 19, 20 and they're trying to figure something out, right? They still might end up wanting to talk to their teacher. They still might end up wanting to talk to a therapist. But again, they're going to that conversation from a place of, I've really given this a lot of thought and here's what I think I need, right? Which is very different from, shoot, I'm, I'm having a really hard time. I need somebody else to get me out of this mess, right? So it's about building those muscles of resilience and grit and self-awareness and, and all that stuff um, that really does happen when our kids are younger so that when they get to adulthood, they know, oh, this is familiar to me. Oh, I've gotten myself out of a rut before. I know, I know how to do it. Or this is familiar. I'm not sure how to get out of this one because this one feels different from previous ones. But that's very different from, I have no idea. I need to like outsource all of my decisions to somebody else, a teacher, a therapist, or whoever. Sure. So it's sort of like putting all the tools in our kids' toolbox from a young age. And then hopefully when they get to the point of seminary, Shiva being away from home, whatever major next life transition they go through, marriage, employment, whatever, mm -hmm. then they have a lot of tools and resources. And so much of that comes from their whole childhood, their messages that they get from their families, their parents, and all of that stuff as they age. Um, and again, like you keep mentioning, you know, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, this, that's all about the balance, right? Right. Don't right. abandon your kids, but, you know, maybe teach them another. It's about finding the right balance for each individual kid and each individual situation, right? Like some kids you could probably never have that conversation with rationally. And some kids are very emotionally in touch and you could. So totally. um, interesting. But, you know, I wanted to um, go back to something you mentioned about mentorship and you know, the, the conversations that a lot of students have with their teachers and stuff. This was another theme that came up for me um, about uh, sort of healthy versus unhealthy mentorship. 
and I kind of think I already know the answer because of (laughs) everything we've talked about till now. But um, one of the concerns someone had was it seems like there are a lot of kids who want to build very close relationships with their mechanchos or mechanchim, rebbe, teacher, whatever. Um, And sometimes it gets to the point of being very unhealthy where they think that they have to do exactly everything that this person does because they want to be just like them. Um, Sometimes maybe the mentor might encourage that either consciously or subconsciously. Um, Is there any way for a parents to prepare their kids for situations like that, which might turn unhealthy? And B, you know, if a kid gets into a situation like that in Israel and the parent has concerns, like what would be the approach? Obviously could get a little sticky because this is their their kid's teacher, right? But a parent might get a sense like something doesn't seem so so kosher here. Right. So there are a lot of professionals in the field, researchers, different people that have drawn really fascinating um, parallels between toddlerhood and middle to late adolescence. Um, It's a lot of identity building. Um, (laughs) Both of them often have a lot of tears. Um, It's a lot of physical growth that happens all at the same time, like massive physical changes, and at the same time, big emotional changes. And so there are a lot of parallels between toddlerhood and adolescence. So you're saying Um, teenagers are just giant toddlers? It makes so much sense. Basically, they eat a lot, they make a mess, yes. Luckily, they're toilet trained at that point, so they have something going for them. Exactly. They can shower themselves, right? That goes a long way. Um, But one of the things that's interesting is when we talk about identity formation for a toddler and identity formation for an adolescent, both of them have the experience of trying to figure out who they are in the world by pushing up against the people around them. So that's why toddlers become very, um, or can become oppositional, um, because they want to try to figure out how do I assert myself? They're not bad kids. They're not naughty. They're just, mommy says, yes, I say no. I'm trying to figure out who I am, sort of connected the people in my life. And that happens with adolescents also. So why are teenagers rebelling? Why do the teenagers slam the door? Why do the teenagers, you say yes, they say no. You say black, they say white. It's all it's all part of the same thing. It's I'm trying to figure out who I am, connected the world around me and the people around me. So if that's the case, then when we have an 18-year-old, 19-year-old that we send off to Israel for the year, and all of a sudden, they've gone from sort of the cocoon of all of the familiar people and places and things from their life, and they go into a totally new environment with a totally new set of adults, totally new set of adults, they then go through a really fascinating experience where they try to figure out themselves can I get the rest of the world by looking at who are these other adults in my life? They're not the same people that I've been used to having Shabbos meals with for the last 18 years. They're not the people that have put me to bed for the last 18 years. They're not the teachers that even if they were only my teacher in sixth grade, I saw them in the hall every single day, even when I was in 10th grade. It's a totally new set of adults. And so these relationships can become a really interesting place. Um, Not just the school can be a place for identity formation, but the relationships themselves can be a really, really interesting almost like laboratory for identity formation. Um, Put that on top of the fact that these teachers um, don't know that they got in trouble for whatever they got in trouble for in 10th grade and don't know that their mother is the really overbearing one and their father is the this one. They don't know, 
right? They start over with a lot of these teachers with a totally clean slate. Although between you and me, I would tell you a lot of the schools know which ones have the overbearing parents because they call all the time and they know. But, but the vast majority <laughs> of the teachers don't know that. The people in the office know that, um, right? So, so it's a totally clean slate for these, and I, I hate to call them kids because they're not kids, for these young adults to really start saying like, but who am I gonna be in this next chapter of my life? What's my identity gonna be all about? And so these relationships can be a really interesting place for them to start figuring that out, even if they don't realize that that's what ha what's happening in these relationships. That's very often what's going on. So if we go back to one of the first things we said, which is like, we send off our kids with the knowledge that my parents always have my back. My parents love me no matter what. Our relationship is unconditional then I can sort of experiment. I'm gonna hang out with this teacher. I'm gonna hang out with that teacher. I'm gonna play with Hasidus. I'm gonna play with this, right? All these different things. I have a safe place to experiment from if I know that I have that really safe foundation of I'm not gonna be judged. I can try this on, I can try that on and everything's gonna be okay. Where it gets sticky is where the parents say, I'm never gonna judge you and I love you unconditionally, but the kid knows they don't mean it, right? Like our kids are smart. So I'm going to say I love you no matter what, but really this is what I want you to wear. Or I'm going to say I love you no matter what, but these are the hashkachas we use and that's it, right? And so when the kids know there's, a, there's a, a discrepancy between what my parents say and what my parents do, even if it comes from a place of love, when the kids know that there's a gap, very often they try to find someone from whom the love is unconditional. And because a lot of these teachers only have to be with them, have to get to be with them for one or two years, and they don't know their history, and they don't know their family, and they don't really have to worry about where they're going to be in 10, 20 years from now. They don't have to worry about who's going to pay the bills and who are they going to marry. I'm not saying they're not invested. They're very invested in, in our kids' futures, for sure. But it's a different responsibility, let's say, than parents. Then they can become the kind of relationship that's very comfortable for a young adult who's trying to figure out their identity in the world, pushing up against the adults around them, but that are not the adults that have raised them and are not the adults that are gonna have to be responsible for them for the next 10, 20 years. So it's not all unhealthy, but I will also say it's not all healthy. Um, but I think when we talk about that with our kids in advance, they can they can sort of pick up on, you know, what is something I could rely on my Rebbe for? What's something I probably shouldn't rely on my Rebbe for? What are conversations that I absolutely can be comfortable talking about with my teacher? What are conversations that maybe I should think twice about having with my, my teacher, right? So there's no clear answer, but I think when we look at it developmentally and understand the psychology of, of the developmental stage of 18, 19, 20 year olds, I think it gives a lot of clarity to relationships play out with the intensity and the intimacy that they very often and do so it's all part of that, that big life change yeah i think so wow think it's so. a really fascinating to understand the background of it and i feel like it's so important because then as parents you know how to navigate that you know totally i mean i will to just say like I think it's fascinating. I think I have the best job in the world. I think I'm like the luckiest person alive that I get to do something that I love. Like I really, really, really love it. Um, and and yeah, I think like the more we as parents understand what our kids are going through, the more we can not only empathize because empathy is important, but we can also in a very sort of cunning strategic kind of way, if we understand where they're at, we can help them navigate whatever it is that we think is appropriate for them. 
Um, but if we only see it from the outside, oh, they're getting really close with that Rebbe, that's weird. Oh, she's only wearing this now, that's really weird, or whatever it might be, it's really hard to to get to the underlying stuff if the only things we understand are the things on the on the surface that are like visible, let's say. Right, right. So fascinating. I I love hearing you speak about all these topics because like you said, it relates to so many different stages of life. And it's almost like the foundation is more important than this actual stage. Um, you know, what we build to get our kids to that stage. Um, and like you, like you mentioned, it's, it is really important for someone with a seven-year-old. I also didn't think I would gain as much, but, um, it's important, but it also feels like a lot of pressure, but you know, good pressure because, and, and having the tools and the knowledge, you know, helps. Um, it's really, really fascinating. Um, I'm curious to hear from you, uh, what are some of the biggest sort of issues that you're seeing, that you're dealing with, that you think it's important for parents to be aware of before they send their kids off? Okay. Best question of the day. I'm so excited. Oh, yay. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So... I, I, why do I think it's the best question of the day? Because like, if the kid is really good at Rashi or the kid is not really good at Rashi, that's a skill. They'll either increase in their skill or they won't increase in their skill. But that's not really going to be a determinant of like their long-term, lifelong well-being, right? What are the things that are going to get in the way or will catapult our kids to being just like deeply satisfied with their lives, right? So the first one I would say is is where we started, which is this question of judgment. Um, and I think, unfortunately, I think our kids are being raised in a world with tremendous judgment. Um, and I'm not going to say it's all bad. I think when we tell kids, you don't have to care what anybody else thinks, like, I'm going to call your bluff. You do have to care what other people think. Um, people who don't care what anybody else thinks are like psychopaths, right? And I mean that like clinically, right? Like they're going to behave in certain ways that they don't care how somebody else thinks of them. And, and that's not what we want for our children, obviously. But going back to balance, right, we do have to strike a balance of, of course, we have to care what other people think, because that influences our behavior and our midos and the way we carry ourselves in the world. Of course, that matters. And yet at the same time, we have to be motivated by like that fiery thing inside of our bellies, which is like our personal character, right? So um, if all of my friends want to wear purple, but I want to wear red, is that a reason to wear purple or can I wear the red? Obviously, it's a very, very, very silly example. But when you sort of copy paste that to the more adult issues, all of my friends are wearing whatever it is they're wearing. My daughter's coming home from seminary and she's wearing something else. Am I embarrassed by that? Am I proud of that? Right. So we, we could look at it as a, a children's issue. But like a lot of us have those questions still as adults. Um, and I think it would be it would be a shame if we only categorize those as kids issues. So one, I think, is nobody wants to be judged. As parents, we don't want to be judged. As adults, we don't want to be judged. As kids, we certainly don't want to be judged. Um, and so that that would be, I think, one of the big things that like kids, let's say, come into their year in Israel with an underlying fear of, even if they can't articulate it, even if they don't realize that, I think that's what's going on. And the ones that enter their year as kids but come out as adults, I think are the ones who have figured out how to like deal with how do I feel about judgment. Another one, big, 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 big one, I would say, is like the independence stuff. Um, because like we were saying, it's for most of them, it's the first time that they're on their own to this extent, even if it's not fully on their own. Um, I was working with um, someone this past year, actually, 
was in seminary and she was really, really struggling with all kinds of other things. But on top of it, she was, she came in one day for an appointment, furious, furious, furious at her parents. Why? How can it be, she's screaming at me, that I'm 18 and a half and I don't know how to make myself lunch and I'm starving and all I do is eat cookies and garbage and I'm going to come home like, you know, weighing all this extra weight, which is another fear that a lot of the kids have, but I'm going to come home weighing all this weight because all I do is eat the garbage because I don't know how to make myself lunch. How did my parents raise me to be 18 and a half and I don't know how to make myself lunch? Now, does she really need to be that angry at her parents? No, obviously. But there is a question. How do we raise our kids with like, beautiful homes and resources and access to all kinds of unbelievable things. And many of them, you'd be surprised, don't know how to make lunch, don't know how to unload a dishwasher, freak out when it's laundry day because they have no idea how to do laundry. And it all comes from a place of love. I want to raise you in a home where either I will do this stuff or I will hire somebody else to do this stuff so that you can do other things because you're in school until 530 in the afternoon, because I want you to be the captain of this extracurricular or whatever it might be, right? It comes from a place of love, but it's not uncommon for them to get to Israel where either their mommy or in some egalitarian houses, their daddy or their housekeeper isn't there to do those things. And it ends up, some of them giggle, but some of them are like filled with anger. Like, how could you raise me to not know how to do these things, to not take care of myself? Um, now that might be like to some degree an extreme example, but the independence stuff I think is, is a big deal for a lot of the students. Um, and it goes to things like, I don't know how to make myself lunch, but it also goes to, I don't really know how to navigate these really complicated philosophical decisions that I have to make, hashkafic decisions. How do I choose a hashkafa that's right for me if maybe it's not the same hashkafa as my parents or the school that I went to, right? That's, that's a question of independence. It's not necessarily a halachic question, although, although it overlaps with halachic questions, right? Um, and so the independence stuff is a really, really, really big deal. Um, the last year and a half was actually a really interesting um, experience for me to witness from like my little, you know, Dalad Amos, because um, very often the first few weeks or months of the school year, on whichever nights they're allowed to go to town, they go to town, and some of them are late for curfew, and they end up doing things that they get in trouble for, but like most of them end up figuring out, okay, I got that out of my system, I'm like ready to buckle down and be serious. But what was so interesting is because of COVID, nobody was going anywhere. Like they kind of didn't even need a curfew because nobody was going out, right? There was no going to Ben Yehuda. There was no going to Mamilla. Like it just wasn't happening. And to watch, it, it's going to sound like ironic a little bit, but there were fewer opportunities for these kids to mess up to learn from their mistakes in some ways, which is a really, really, really interesting thing. So some of them ended up, you know, if you own an apartment in Jerusalem, just know your kids are using it and they're probably using it for things they're not supposed to be using it for. Like that's just part of the reality. Even if they're not allowed to, they, they might do it anyways. So guys, okay, so kids whose families had apartments would have parties and you know, there would be things going on at those parties that you would not want them to go on, but it was all sneaking out. It wasn't, I'm gonna, it, it wasn't like those first few weeks or months where the schools really know they're gonna mess up. They're gonna be late for curfew. They're gonna be hanging out with people they maybe shouldn't, but like, they're probably gonna figure that out. And it's a really healthy way for them to learn from their mistakes. Cause then they have the rest of the year to get themselves onto the right path instead of being forced onto the right path. But the last year and a half was really interesting because those students missed those opportunities. And so the mess ups in some way were like higher stakes. Wow. Um, cause there was less space, let's say for them to do those mess ups. 
Um, so it was really interesting. So um, please God, please God, please God, the whole world should just continue on the path to get where we need to get and be totally healed and be done with this Balagan. Um, so, I mean, we're going to have to see what happens with the kids that are going to be young adults that are going to be in Israel this coming year. Um, especially knowing that there's a difference between, you know, what happens in the States and what happens in Israel and what are the expectations and all those different things. Um, but that's also part of the independence and, and making good judgment calls and those kinds of things. So interesting because <laughs> that's one thing that someone said to me, oh, you know, it seems like a lot of yeshiva guys um, fall into like alcoholism or I don't want to say alcoholism because that's a, a, a label, but they start drinking heavily in their first few months. And I don't know, for some reason it starts leveling off at like around four months or so. Someone really said that to me and I was like, mm -hmm. that's weird. But, you know, putting in context of what you just said, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess the scary thing is you don't know at what point is it going to level off or is this going to turn into dysfunction or addiction and things like that? Because now this kid is being given the freedom to experience this stuff, you know, independently away from their families. Whereas maybe like had they been home, their parents would have a tighter lid on them and they wouldn't be have, they wouldn't have the same opportunity. So right. it's just so interesting because, you know, your point is exactly that, like that a large extent of this behavior is totally normal and they're just learning how to mess up and, you know, to what extent they can mess up without consequences and things like that. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting is, and this ties into good or bad judgment calls and independence and all those things. In Israel, the legal age to buy and, and, and consume alcohol is 18. Why? Because if you're old enough to sit in a tank and protect us and go into the army, you're old enough to be responsible with a bottle of alcohol, right? That That's sort of like the wisdom. Also, you vote at 18, right? Like 18 in Israel, you got to be responsible because like we're kind of all in your hands, right? Right. In America, that's not the case. And so for the yeshiva and seminary students, the, the schools themselves may have rules against purchasing or consuming alcohol. But if they go into a store, they can buy it. They're not sneaking. They're not doing anything wrong in the eyes of the law. They might be doing something wrong in the eyes of the school, but not in the eyes of the law. So it's also an, it, the, the access that they have to purchasing and consuming this kind of stuff um, is also like a total different standard than what they may have been accustomed to growing up in the States. Wow. So there's a lot of factors that play into it. It's really fascinating. I remember seeing this article online a little while back, but it's just so fascinating. It goes to what you just spoke about. This woman, for some reason, I don't know why, what her intention was, but she posted a picture of her five-year-old helping her with the laundry. Why? I don't know. Everyone has to post everything, right? So her five-year-old was helping her load the, the the washing machine or the dryer, whatever. Anyway, the point of this article was that there was an insane blowback because she got an insane amount of hatred of people yelling at her, why are you using your child as a slave? Your child's not your slave. You should do the laundry. You have no business making your five-year-old do your laundry. And like this whole huge wave of internet hate came at her Nabuff innocent post. I don't know if she was a Jewish woman, but whatever. Anyway, regardless, she just posted a picture of her child. And I was thinking like quite the opposite. Like she's teaching her child how to do chores in the house. Like since when is that something we hate people for? And I think that the world has changed so much in this regard. Like our kids are so pampered and so like sheltered from everything, you know, and just, just, developing good coping skills like why can't a five-year-old help with the laundry they have the physical ability to and there was nothing to indicate that she was being harsh or 
you know, a slave driver, you know, so fascinating, because yeah, when when we don't fix that for our kids, then they wind up dysfunctional later on. But that also exactly proves it sort of totally validates a kid or even an adult's fear of being judged because there she put up this innocent picture and was judged. Right. And not only was judged quietly, was judged with a lot of noise and made her feel terrible. Right. So if somebody could feel judged for something like I thought I was doing like a healthy thing for my kid, how much more so do we have the fear of doing something really sticking our necks out and and really going against the grain and being out of the box? Um, that, that, That really validates that fear. And the other thing I'll just say, and I say this as like an us, like I'm definitely part of it, but like we're also very pampered, many of us, right? Like whichever one of us has help in the house, I don't care if it's one day a week or live in full time. We're also very pampered. Like my 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 Bobby in Russia did not have that, right? Absolutely. And, and I think, thank God. And I think she would say like, Bar Hashem, like that's why we did what we did because you shouldn't have to struggle and you shouldn't have to blah, blah, blah. And it's a gift, for sure it's a gift, right? Um, but we can't blame it all on our kids. Like, and I'm not saying it's blame, God forbid, but to recognize the context in which our kids are growing up, it's not so simple to just make sort of castaway lines like, you know, oh, kids today. Okay, but also like the adults today, right? We have like nice cars and we have dry cleaners and we have whatever it is, you know, you go to the fruit store and the fruit is already cut for you. Like even something as simple as that, that we totally don't even think about how many people in the world have to cut their own watermelon, right? Now it doesn't really matter in terms of like the big stuff of life, but like, we're also part of a system where like a lot right. of stuff gets done for us, you know? Right. And it's not just the cut fruit. It's reflective of so much else in our lives. And like, I always think about my grandmother who uh, she passed away a few years ago, but she didn't live that long ago. Right. And in her childhood, like she was dragging buckets of laundry to scrub by hand in the river and then schlepping. She used to describe these like heavy, heavy baskets back because they were like saturated (laughs) with water. And then she had to schlep them back from the river to their little house in Hungary to hang it out on the line. And like, I I, want to know how to wash it. Like I I throw it (laughs) in the washing machine and like that's considered a big deal, you know? Right. right, Yeah, it's true. We are. We are very fine. And I think every generation probably says kids these days, you know? (laughs) Um, Okay. So lots of super valuable stuff about the seminary year and preparing for it or the yeshiva year, depending on who your child is. Um, To just pivot a little bit towards the transition back home, um, I think this is a big deal to a lot of people. Obviously, some kids do just fine. They come home. Everything's great. But there is an adjustment back to, quote unquote, real life. And then there's a lot of pressure associated with coming back from seminary, especially for girls, because now all of a sudden, if you're not married next month, you're an old maid. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think a lot of parents have this sort of uh, battle of finding the right balance with how do we help our kid transition back now that, like you've said, they've worked so hard the whole year to assert their independence, to learn who they are. Now they're officially gonna be labeled a grown up. Um, in many, many, many circles, whether good or not, they are now labeled as ready for marriage, um, whether or not they actually are. So what is the parent's role and what's the best advice you can give the parents for helping their kids move back home. Maybe now they're looking at school, they're looking at careers, they're looking to go out with their friends, yet you're still responsible for them as the parent. Do you want them to report back to you? Do you give them a curfew? Do you have total independence? What's what's sort of a good approach to our kids coming home now? Yeah. 
So one thing I would say again, and I, I know it sounds a little bit like a, like a cheap shot, but there's no one answer, right? You really do have to know yourself as a parent. You really have to know your child as an individual. And, and you should also have a really good sense of what their experience was during the year, what kind of school they were in, what kind of environment they were in. But with all of that said, even if we remove the religious Jewish part of it, this is a question that parents all across America have to ask, let's say winter break of their child's freshman year, right? They all go off to college, you know, it's not uncommon to go to a different state outside of the from world. So they're living in a dorm, they're going in, a, they're in a totally different part of the country. They come home from winter break and all of a sudden the parent is like, wait, what, what am I supposed to do with this kid? What's my job? What's my role? So when we know that that's like a, a normative question to ask, and then we sort of layer it with all of the Jewish stuff and the Frumkite stuff and the marriage stuff and the Israel stuff, it becomes a really loaded question. I think the best way to think about it is to say that up until the time they left for Israel, we were as the parents kind of like the directors or the, the executive producers of the film. And when they come home from Israel, we're like the camera guys. Like we're there, we can tell them like where, which might be a better angle, how we might be able to see the thing better, but the, it, it's their show, you know? If, if we've done our job, please God, right? If we've done our job, let's say you with your seven-year-old, um, by the time they come home from Israel, we now know we have raised them, please God, well enough, and we've imbued them with all the stuff that they need, that they can come to us with questions and they can ask us for help and they can look at the, the film that you just shot and say, how did I do? But they're the ones saying the script and they know where to stand and they, they know sort of how they're gonna, how they're gonna finish the scene. Um, it's very hard. It's very hard and, and it's much easier said than done. And I say that as a professional and I say that as a parent, it's so much easier said than done. Um, but the more we remain in the director's seat or the executive producer's seat, the more we're sort of handicapping our own kids from being able to make those decisions. So not God forbid to say when they get married, I'm not gonna be involved or when they please God have babies, I'm not gonna be involved. Of course we wanna be involved, but at that point, she's the Kala, she's the mother, she is the one raising the child, and you're now the grandmother. It's not your kid, right? So it's a very, very, very hard transition to make. And again, I'm not rushing them to the Kala, I'm not rushing them to have babies. Like it could be with their job search, it could be with filling out the forms for, you know, registering for courses for the fall if they're going to school, whatever it might be. But re realizing that, like, it's their, it's their show now. Um, and we're there to support and we're there to help. And, and, and going back to that initial question, I will always be there for you and I will always love you unconditionally. And I will always support you. It doesn't mean I'm always going to agree with you. And that's where the stuff really kicks in. I may not always agree with everything you're doing, but like, what do I mean when I say unconditional? Does it mean that like strings are attached? Does it mean I'm only going to help you financially if you do what I want you to do? Or is the financial assistance there because I've raised you and I trust you and you can make decisions, right? Like, it, it, that's why I'm saying there's no one answer, but I do think that just fundamentally our role as parents shifts when they come home from that year um, to say, it's still my house. I'm still going to be the one making the, sh you know, calling the shots about the house, but it's your life, right? And, and sort of letting them take the lead. And it might be a shock to the system and it might be totally uncomfortable, but ultimately I think that what that's, if, if a kid has that when they go into adulthood, I think ultimately that's one of like the major like secret sauces of what makes a kid a successful adult is is being able to have that space to say like okay it's my show now you know what am I going to do about it I can't imagine how hard that is because like you were saying 
their their transition into the Israel year, very often the kids act out and make bad decisions and then they learn from it. But the parent doesn't have to watch it happen, right? Correct. This is Correct. school administration and teachers and whoever who know that this is a thing and they have a little bit of distance because it's not their child and they can view the situation more objectively, right? But that's obviously doesn't mean that's the last bad decision the kid's going to make. And then they come <laughs> home and they might make some questionable decisions or they might decide they're going to choose a career that the parents like, no, that is like, so not you. I know you're going to waste time in school, you know, doing something that you're going to hate or, you know, dating someone that the parent can't stand or knows is really wrong for their child. And then to be able to like, take a back seat when you're obviously so invested because this is your kid. All I can say is it must be very, very hard. It's very hard. At, at, at times it's so hard. It feels impossible. Like I can't, I can't just sit here and watch this happen. That, that's how hard it feels. And at that point, what do you do? You just continue to watch it happen or do you try to involve a third party or like, I guess it I depends think on the situation. Yeah, it depends. But I think if there are real concerns, right? And and, and each person is going to decide what qualifies as like a, a concern versus a major concern, right? And everybody has their own spectrum. But if you get to a point where you really feel like there's something very serious that you just can't sit there and watch anymore. Again, this is with the assumption that you have raised your child to be a thoughtful, um, intentional thinking, not just thoughtful, but a thinking adult, then I think you can have a conversation with your kid. But I think it's a dialogue. I don't think it's a monologue. I don't think it's a speech. I don't think it's the parent telling the kid, you can't do this or you must do this. Because that just sort of messes up the whole system of saying, like, I'm going to raise you to be a functional adult. I think you can share your concerns 100%. I think you can share why you feel concerned. Um, I think you can listen to the child to say, can you explain to me, like, why you're making this decision or how you reached that conclusion or why you think this is, you know, what's right for you or not. And I will listen to you because that's part of the I will always be here for you. I'm not always going to agree, but I will always be here for you. Um but, but I think that's the difference. I think when your kid is 14, 15, 16, and they're doing something that you find just totally unacceptable, it's not necessarily a dialogue. Very often it's a monologue. I'm the mama. That, I said so. I'm the dad. I said so. That's the way it is. As long as you live in this house, you play by my rules. And I think that shifts from the 14, 15, 16-year-olds to the 18, 19, 20-year-olds. It shifts from being a monologue to a dialogue. Because if not, if we keep telling them what to do, what are they going to do when they're married and they have a job to get to and they have kids to take care of? Like, how are they going to know how to function or how to fix their mess ups or how to fix their kids mess ups? Right. Um, so I'm not saying God forbid that it's all hands off. I'm not at all at all advocating for that, but I do think it shifts from, from being a monologue to a dialogue. I love that. I think it captures the whole situation so perfectly, just <laughs> the, the shift from monologue to dialogue. Um, you know, that terminology, like, it really helps put into perspective the whole aspect, right? Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. now you have more of a say, because you're a grown up and, you know, mm -hmm. um, parents gonna be more of a partner or a backseat right. role kind of thing. Very I also say just in terms of the other stuff of coming home, I mean, there's so much, there's some really, really interesting research, actual research on like the flipping out phenomenon and whatever. But but I'll, I'll just give this example. Um, because I think it frames a lot of things, hopefully, in a way that we can sort of clarify our own questions, um, which is all of our kids are going to make changes, right? Nobody is cookie cutter. Um, nobody does copy paste from their parents. And if they do, in some ways, that's actually quite sad. 
right? We want our kids to be their own people. We want them to develop their own character. A minhag is a minhag, a halacha is a halacha, social norms are social norms for sure. But we don't want, we don't want copy paste from us to our children. Hopefully we don't, right? Um, and that, that shows up in every way. It shows up in style. It shows up in, I like hot dogs, I like steak. It shows up in, in, in the important stuff and the not important stuff. Um, and I was speaking with a friend this past week um, about she's not from at all. And she sent her daughter on a program, her granddaughter on a program um, in Israel. It was sort of like a Kiruvi, Kiruv light kind of program. And the daughter came home wanting to keep Shabbos. And the family was like very Jewishly tuned in, but not halachically observant. So they keep Shabbos by having um, family meals. Um, and in their mind, Shabbos is over when it's like, you know, nightfall, when it's like a little bit dark. And the granddaughter came home from Israel saying, um, I know, I know, grandma, that you think Shabbos is over at whatever time. But like, for me, Shabbos is going to be like another 45 minutes or something like that. Um, and the grandmother was like, furious. If I had known that they were going to make her such an extremist, I never would have paid for her to go on this program. It's so crazy. And I'm sitting listening to this friend of mine and I'm thinking like, forget all the halachic implications. Take that whole thing out of it. We're talking about a 45 minute difference between something. 45 minutes. So you want to speak to her at seven. She wants to call you back at 7.45. You have a very, very close relationship with your granddaughter. Are you really going to let anger seep into that relationship over 45 minutes? Again, taking out the whole halachic question, right? They're not religious. So I think in some ways we can sort of look at that as like, oh my God, she wants to come home wearing these crazy long skirts or these crazy kikirikis under everything or these long sleeves or he's only going to eat this hashkacha. And some of it might be legitimate. It might be totally legitimate. But we have to look at it from the kid's perspective. Why? did she decide to start dressing like this? Or he decided to start dressing like this? Or why did you reach this conclusion about which hashkachas you're gonna choose or where you're gonna eat or what you're gonna watch or what you're gonna listen to on the radio? Meaning their decisions may not be the decisions that we make and we may not agree with them. How much are we willing to make that sleeve length or that hashkacha seep into our relationship with our children? And again, I'm oversimplifying it, and I know that it's so much easier said than actually done. But when we think about this grandmother and the granddaughter, like you have this amazing relationship with her, and you're talking about a 45-minute discrepancy, right? So you might dress one way, and the kid wants to dress another way. Or you might love movie night, and the kid might say, I don't watch movies anymore. I'm not minimizing what an issue that is, but I'm just saying like, we have to decide, you know, everything about parenting is sort of choosing our battles. We have to decide what are the things worth battling over and what are not. And it's going to be different from every single parent. One parent is going to make the biggest thing about sleeve length. And another parent is going to say, okay, I think she looks a little weird. I think she's going to be a little hot, but like, okay, I'll go shopping with her. Another parent would say like, no way, that's not how we dress in this family. Right. And every parent is going to have like a different spectrum of what counts as like an acceptable battle to choose and what doesn't. But I do think that that's a huge part of transitioning home of saying like, what really matters to me about the decisions my kid is making? And what's like the tough L? Like what's, what's like the extra that it's a little annoying, or I think it's a little bit silly, or it's a little hypocritical, or it's a little bit extremist, but like, okay, I'm just gonna like leave that on the side and let them sort that out. You know, again, I'm not minimizing it. I'm not saying it's so easy because it's not. And I know that and I recognize that. But I do think that that's could be potentially a helpful way of looking at it, um, of thinking about this grandmother and saying, like, 45 minutes, like, really, you're going to distance yourself over 45 minutes, you know? 
Right. So that's sort of, I understand what you're saying about the attitude to like the more um, recognizable or superficial change, like, okay, her sleeves are going to be a little longer that whatever, who cares. Right. But do, does it ever come into play where the parent has to be more concerned about where is this change coming from? Right. Like, is my daughter taking this humra on because she's doing it from a healthy place or because it's peer pressure or because this is what her teacher slash mentor did. And she's just really trying to emulate the externalities of someone that she thinks she needs to be just like, you know, like, do we have to concern ourselves with what the underlying reason for this change is? Because sometimes that could be a little unhealthy. So, so these are, you know, what you're describing are the manifestations of maybe something a little deeper going on. Definitely. Definitely. Yes. And that's why I think that shift from monologue to dialogue is important because the kid might say, look, I became really close with this teacher and this is what they do. So I took on their whatever, their minhag, their whatever. The kid might say, you know, I just never really learned it in high school. Like we kind of danced around the issue, but I never saw it in the text. And when I saw it in the text in Israel, I just felt like I can't argue with that. Right. Who knows what the kid's answer might be? Right. And, and that's why the dialogue part of it is so important, because then you can sort of gauge where is this coming from? Do I think it's going to last? Is it something that we should speak to somebody else about? Does it cross over any other lines that I should be concerned about? A lot of parents like to use the keyboard of aim argument when it comes to this conversation. Do I really want to pull that card now or do I want to save that card for another time? Right. And, and it's not such an easy answer. Right. But but I do think that that's part of it. I also think that there's a lot of, um, I mean, this relates to some of the, the research about flipping out that was done years ago. They're about, I think they're about to replicate the study um, just to see sort of how it goes several years later. But basically one of the things, they found a lot of really interesting things, but one of the things they found is that um, when they examined students that went through whatever recognizable changes they went through that qualified for the study, um, the the movement from one statistical point to another was actually quite small. Um, and that it seemed like a bigger phenomenon because it's all the visible stuff. It's sleeves and it's which hashkachas and it's which movies and it's all those different things. That's where kids either do change or don't change. Um, but that the like the lamaisa of what's actually changing in like the essence of who this child was now that they're becoming an adult, that stuff didn't really change all that much in the studies. Um, and that's why I think it has to become a question of like, should I have concerns about this or not? Do I feel like my child has taken on a totally different identity and is sort of denying the authenticity of who they are? Or are they just sort of experimenting with what feels right for them to live in, you know, the, the life that they want? And and again, there's no one answer. It's case by case, it's kid by kid, it's family by family. Um, but I think that's an important thing to to realize that when we talk about flipping out, a lot of it is the observable stuff. Most of the biggest changes are not like the inside sort of guts of who the kid has been and will continue to be. A lot of that stuff shifts based on the seeds that were planted when they were in middle school and high school. And um, the study actually said something like, the year in Israel should be viewed as like the capstone project of 12 years of Jewish education, something like that. That whatever's happening for during their year or two in Israel is not happening in isolation. It's happening as a cause and effect or a chain reaction or a correlation or a causation, however you want to look at it. it, it it's what happens after the 12 years 
um, that they've been educated in our schools, it's not happening stem, sort of out of nowhere, which I think is like a really, really interesting way of looking at it. And it also really highlights the need to build that foundation of balance, you know, which we keep going back to. So I think yeah. two of the underlying themes, like common threads of this whole conversation is building that foundation from the young age. And obviously like you can't just have a conversation before you send them off for seminary and your job's done when the rest of the time you didn't put in the work, which I'm sure, you know, no one does, but of course, obviously mm -hmm. we're all working our best for our kids their entire lives. But, you know, just the perspective of looking back, um, well, rather looking ahead from when they're a young age and also just the need to really find that balance or, you know, the constant search for the balance, um, how important that is. So um, and, and it really plays into and is woven through so many of the different things that you brought up, which are all really fascinating and really insightful. So Dr. Viva Goldstein, thank you so, so much for giving me your time. Your insight is so precious and so valuable. And also you just have a really awesome, clear way of presenting it all with the balance. And um, <laughs> I think that for people in this stage and for people who are pre this stage, it is all so, so useful. Um, and really a lot of these themes apply to every stage in life, not just seminary, but um, it's really interesting to hear your insight of how it all plays out at that stage in life. Um, so once again, I just want to thank you for your time and for all of your knowledge and insight. And this was a real, real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I also have to thank you for being a resource for the community. I really feel like all these podcasts that have showed up are such a gift sort of sharing conversations that not all of us had access to before you were, you know, using your microphone. So just thank you on behalf of the whole you know, all the listeners, all the community, everybody who has access to your stuff, you're doing really important work. So I thank you for that. I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you for the compliment. And it's my pleasure. I love doing this. I love hearing new information and I love sharing it with other people. So thank you so, so, so much. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye.